Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, a look at the state of University of Arizona students and security following last month's shooting. It's been almost a month since Dr. Thomas Meixner, the head of the University of Arizona's Department of Hydrology and Atmospheric Sciences, was shot and killed on the university campus. Recently, some hydrology students reached out to AZPM and wanted to talk about what happened and what is now going on. Our reporter, Paola Rodriguez, sat down with Danielle Tadich, Abigail Kaler, and Justin Headley a few days ago. Abigail, since you were the one that first reached out to us, can you start off by telling me about how you're doing right now? I would say I'm getting to a point of clarity And that's why I reached out to you, because the only message I was hearing in the media is reactions and general campus-wide. And the Hydrology and Atmospheric Sciences Department, we students and our faculty, had been living with this for months. And so now I feel a responsibility to speak about that, things that could have been done differently, things that, you know, we tried to do. I think it's really important to let people know about that. And I also think it's part of my healing, um, as a lot of us students have talked to each other because there's a lot of what ifs, you know, and that's not on us. So every day is different. I'm incredibly behind in my coursework. Um, I haven't been able to get my brain to function just this week. I've started trying to work and, uh, It's not going well. And Danielle, how are you doing? Every day is kind of, it changes. Um, I'm kind of past the point of shock at this point and uh, just kind of been cycling back and forth through the stages of grief. It is getting easier. Um, So I was taking Tom's water quality class when all of this went down, but I um, decided to stay home that day. Okay, what if I had gone to class that day? Could I have done something? And so it's been really hard to work past those things. I also have only really started to try to do work last week. I haven't been able to go back to Harshbarger, um, except in passing for little things. And Justin, how, how has it been for you? I was doing okay in the beginning, but I have been sort of cycling through those stages of grief also. Um, I spent a lot of the first couple days feeling guilty because I've, you know, I was right there. I was with them minutes before he was killed. And if I had just done things a little differently, if I had decided to walk down this hallway instead of that hallway, then maybe things could have been different and I could have stopped it. I feel like I'm on the recovery, but then every couple of days, another news article comes out mm-hmm. that talks even more about all the signs that this was going to happen. And that sets me back. And it, it really hits me hard to just know about this, such an obvious threat, like th- you couldn't have had more red flags. I mean, and it still happened. We did everything we were supposed to do, and this still happened. And I'm still not really sure how I'm going to get past that. 
And where were you all the day that it happened? So that morning we had the memorial for our classmate who died a couple weeks before. So that morning we um, had his celebration of life. It was really hard. I was not close to him. I had just met him that semester, but we are a really close-knit department, and losing someone like that was tough. So I went there. Um, Tom opened up the ceremony, Dr. Meixner. And so after that, I walked for a long time, called a friend. I went to the turtle pond here, um, just getting some peace. Love the pond. And then I had a a class coming up. It was an online class. So I came back to my office in Harshbarger. And then my office mate came upstairs and she hadn't been to the memorial. So I was talking to her just about a complete exhaustion. And I was so tired that my chest hurt. And we heard these sounds. And I think we both went out into the hallway and like waited because it sounded like someone had pushed a lab cart down the stairs or something. Didn't hear anything up on the third floor after that, so we just went back in and kept talking about how emotionally drained. It took a while to kind of backtrack and realize those were gunshots that we heard. Um, and even like when that occurred to me as a possibility, I just said, we can't, it can't. like no, no, that can't, like, we cannot take one more thing. Um, it's too much. You know, I started getting texts and phone calls. Hey, are you okay? Have you seen this person? There's a couple um, professors that I was closer to, and I had seen them in the building right before, so I was waiting, and I saw them come out. And that's how I learned that Tom had been shot. Um, that's all we knew until the press conference. I mean, when we did finally leave, we walked each other to them, gave each other rides, had plans for who was going to stay with who else that night. And then I went home and uh, went to see my sister, and we listened to the press conference together, and that's when we found out that Tom had died. That is a very heavy day. I think everyone can agree, like, that should have never happened. But to add on to the fact that that morning you were mourning a peer of yours and then that afternoon that happened that's a I don't know that that there's any situation that that could have been easier um so thank you for sharing um Justin what was it like for you that day I was in class with him um he was teaching a water chemistry course and I had actually already taken that course last year um, but I wanted to sit in on his classes because he was such a good professor. We were actually working up in a lab and he and his students went back down to the classroom and then I stayed behind in the lab to clean things up. Then I went to have a meeting, didn't talk more than a couple of minutes before we we heard, you know, bang, 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 bang. And I even remarked, those sound like gunshots. 
but um, there was a lot of construction that was going on in the building and all around school. So it's not actually too uncommon to hear banging sounds. It must have just been some kind of construction sound. And then we continued having the meeting and a fire alarm went off a couple minutes later. I started evacuating with everybody else, uh, started walking down the stairs, started seeing police officers with their guns drawn. I was still thinking like, oh, okay, I know what's going on. You know, it's a false alarm. Somebody heard the construction equipment. They thought it was a gunshot. They called it in because I've been in that situation before. So the denial for me was really strong. And, it, and then eventually, like two hours later, I finally heard a department head was shot. And then I remember reading the description of the suspect and I realized exactly what had happened. I knew exactly who it was because this guy has been terrorizing our department for almost a year. And that's when I finally realized that it was real. You all knew about him terrorizing this department for a long time. Did you know Murad Dervish before the shooting? No, he was um, in the department, but he was on the atmospheric sciences side. So we didn't have any classes. I had met him once. Our uh, club had done an international potluck. So I remember meeting him there. I do have a lot of friends on the atmospheric science side. That's how I kind of knew more of how serious things were around February. That's when things were just kind of starting to escalate. And there was even a false alarm at one point where uh, I think Abigail can probably and Justin can speak more on that. They thought he was like threatening to come there that day. Um, and so they evacuated all the classes in Harshbarger, if I'm not mistaken, or at least in 110. And so after all of that, the department heads were relying on us to kind of like get a feel for what students were thinking and feeling and communicate back and forth. Because our club is kind of that in-between, Tom actually made a specific point last year to have us in on the department meetings. And so after this false alarm thing, I was in on that whole department meeting uh, to try to figure out what to do. What was that department meeting like? So the hydro side was extremely confused trying to figure it out, and then other professors really just couldn't talk about it. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, it's because of FERPA. Even though it, that whole th it's insane, they should have been able to say, hey, my life is in danger right now, and so is potentially other people. We all should take this very seriously. But they couldn't do that. All they could do was say this student was expelled and look at the reasons as to why a student would be expelled. And that is all we can communicate. For you all, was that the same where you only knew about what was going on via 
this email that was sent in February about his expulsion? I'd say, yeah, I, I knew much less than Danielle. I went back through my email to put together the timeline, and I only had the one email announcing that he was expelled. And so everything that I know, everything that I've learned, um, directions, protocols, has all been word of mouth through other students, um, through some professors as they were able to share, which is inadequate, insufficient. You know, the measures that our department was able to take as far as moving our classes to a different building, they were presented as an abundance of caution. But, you know, at that moment, moving classes out, that felt like a big measure to take. You know, things became framed, you know, a week or two after that. You know, do you feel safe going back? Would you feel comfortable now? And I said, I don't know. What's the threat? Should I feel safe? It's just, I had no idea what was going on. One day I'd gotten to class and a few of us were there and one of my classmates, he called me and he said, hey, so-and-so saw him. Um, I'm not coming to class and neither is she. And I, I didn't know what the threat was really. And so I'm on the phone, you know, just like grilling him for more details. I was like, did that person actually see him? And then Justin got there. And uh, do you remember that day? Actually, it was in the Modern Languages building, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we used to, we have this main classroom in the Harshbarger building. And we were just told in a very ambiguous way, due to an abundance of caution, that's a, that's a term that's going to be used a lot. Due to an abundance of caution, we're not holding classes in this one classroom. And we've prepared a new classroom for you in a different building. And we didn't really know why. We heard rumors of some vague threat, a expelled student or something, but we really had no idea. And so we were in a new classroom, and even then we got another tip sort of just word of mouth by someone by I think a student I'm not sure that Murad Dervish is back on campus and he's trying to find out where the new classrooms are and so we had to evacuate we had to pretty much run from that classroom and when was that I couldn't give you an exact date right now but I think it was in February I think that's right I think it was in February do you feel that through this process of all of these steps that were taken before the shooting was more so through department heads pushing constantly for this change and not the university? From my perspective, the investigatory work should have been on the responsibility of the police, not the university. And that's the major failure here is... It personally, that's what I believe the police did not do. They did not take it seriously, and they did not make enough efforts to prevent things. Do you all feel that same way? Yes, for sure. I mean, the police chief in her press statement the day of the shooting, she said, 
if you see something, say something and do something. And we did. We we said everything. We did everything. And they still didn't do anything to stop this. So what more could we have possibly done? We were shouting for months. You know, they tried to serve an injunction against harassment once. It didn't work, even though Dervish has been on record saying, I hope somebody blows your blanking brains out. You know, I'm not sure how that isn't considered threatening or intimidation. We said everything. We did everything someone could ask for this very obvious threat. This person who has a history, a long history of violent criminal behavior. I mean, what more could we have possibly done? I was in that press conference, and in that same press conference, the police chief also said something along the lines of sometimes like you can't tell when these things happen. Yeah, she said it's definitely a tragedy, and I think this is just one of those things you can't even predict. <laughs> How did that feel when you all heard that? It's hurtful and it's insulting. By the way, she said that immediately after talking about how great her department's response time was. But her department's response time wasn't in minutes like she claims. It was in months. And it only happened after the worst actually did happen. Do you feel like at any point you all had to take your own safety into your own hands? One of the reasons I took the water quality class was because I wanted to keep an eye out personally. That was kind of another one of the main consensus of the previous meetings of was just everyone be on the lookout, let's stay vigilant, let's lock doors. And since like that classroom is a central classroom and Tom was in it, I just wanted to be an extra pair of eyes. My uh, partner had given me a, uh, a weapon to keep on me also just in case uh, anything happened. I wasn't too worried about Dervish himself targeting me, except that I was around other people he wanted to get. School shootings are something that I think about a lot. I was not at Virginia Tech when the shooting occurred. I was at a nearby community college, but it still did deeply affect me. And in hindsight, I think it affected me a lot more than I realized. I pretty much always have a plan when I'm in a classroom because those thoughts do creep into my head a lot. You know, I try to come up with a plan. What's in this classroom that I can use as a weapon? What can I barricade the door with? That time when we thought Murad Dervish was on the loose and trying to find us in class, I was standing guard by the door ready to just jump on him if if it came down to that. That's something you should never have to plan for. Exactly. You know, speaking for myself, but in this, speaking for many other students as well, he was seen that day prior to the shooting. People talked about seeing someone. I wasn't thinking too much of it. I just pushed it out of my head. You know, don't be dramatic. Don't be judgmental. He's not even around any anymore. We haven't heard anything in months. And so that is a big frustration and regret for many of us is that 
we weren't clear on the threat from the beginning. There was nothing that went out this semester, you know, for all the new students even saying, hey, this student was expelled. He's not allowed in the building. Um, there's so many students who didn't even know what he looked like or who he was. I never felt in fear for myself, you know, in the months leading up to this, or like I had to take measures into my own hands because I didn't know how bad his threat was personally. And what about now, after this shooting? How do you feel on campus? At the moment, he's locked up. So in a way, I feel safe from that. But it also has kind of crumbled my sense of security. You know, I've stayed away from the building until today. I was able to go in and pack up my office. You know, there will be moments for the first week after I didn't go out. Um, even I'd be in a store and if someone would approach me, I don't know if I felt scared, but I felt overwhelmed. Now that he's locked up, I feel much better a little bit. I am personally worried about if for some reason, because obviously the justice system is flawed, what if he gets out, gets free? So I still go to the Harshbarger building every day. Um, I work in Dr. Meixner's lab every day. But as far as my concerns for safety in general, it does make me wonder how many other potential shooters are there on campus who mm -hmm. their departments or the greater university administration they're trying to keep under wraps and how many other times has the police department ignored somebody else's pleas i'm not worried about you know Murad dervish himself but there could be plenty more like him that mm -hmm. the university isn't prepared to actually deal with and i don't think Dr. Meixner's death is actually going, going to change that by itself. You all reached out to us after the Buzz episode that was talking about October 5th, the shooting. And in your email, you talked about the thing that's being missed, which is that the university knew what was going on and that, that there were steps that were not being taken. What is it that you feel is not being talked about or is not coming forward to light properly? I think there's a whole lot of patting on the back being done about the university's response time and about all the counseling services that are being offered now and all the communication, because there is support now. It's, it's been really helpful to have you know counseling available. But all that patting on the back and the good things they are doing now, I feel like it is eclipsing what was missed before. There were people in our department who were so certain they were going to be murdered that they were having to make plans for it. They were having to give keys to somebody else to take care of their pets, or they had to send sensitive documents to somebody else for safekeeping. I'd like to hear the police's answer for 
how does this scenario play out without someone being murdered? I feel like one of the reasons I wanted to speak up is because I I feel like there is a lot of spotlight on the university and that is valid. There absolutely were things that they could have done. Um, but a lot of the story is lost with the police department and I feel like they weren't taking it seriously, but even though they were doing the minimum, that should show that there is something very wrong with the system. How could this have happened if we have all these systems in place? And I think it just shows that the police are not really here to protect. They are reactionary. In this whole scenario, Professor Meixner is a very key part in this conversation because he was the one who was shot and killed. How was it uh, having Professor Meixner as a professor? It was one of my favorite classes. Um, that's why I went, another one of the reasons why I wanted to take it is because dealing with all this garbage um, this past year, I got a lot of respect for Tom. I was impressed with how he would handle all the different people and personalities. He was the kind of person who you just know, like every time you're around that guy, you're for sure going to get smarter because he, mm -hmm. he just sort of radiates knowledge. I'm really going to miss getting to learn from him. One of the things I loved about him was he would just explain these complicated things in simple ways that you could understand it um, and had like all sorts of phrases to where you could remember it. When I had first transferred to the university, you know, my sister had graduated from the hydrology program, you know, a year or two before, and he remembered her and he knew I was her sister. And, you know, every time we interacted, he'd say something about her, or ask about her. I'm in awe of him and mildly intimidated because he can move so fast and give a lecture on any topic, have an opinion about any topic, and be so well-informed. So I was always afraid I wouldn't be able to keep up. I see him like he was the department. After a traumatic event like this, obviously it really affects mental health. But what were the things that you've needed to take after what happened for yourselves? When we didn't have classes for a week, I could accept that. Like, okay, I don't have to think about school. There is a lot of academic pressure. I don't feel healed. This is a long process, but I know the more time I take for my personal healing and balance and connecting with my community, the more my academic work is piling up. All of our faculty are being so supportive and saying, take your time but I know I have to make my own decision for when I can't give myself that time anymore and I just have to do my work so that that doesn't make its own crisis. I've done actually very little schoolwork um, since Dr. Meixner's death. I have been working in his lab practically every day and I do that on purpose because I feel like it's a good way to honor him. 
because I want to continue his mission of making the world better through biogeochemistry. At the same time, I don't really care anymore. I'm not shooting for a straight A anymore. I think spending time with my friends and just the community is a more important thing. And uh, I, I do want to stress, it's not just the students who are upset. The faculty are devastated also, and they're, yeah. they're really hurting also. And so, you know, it's not just students helping students, it's students helping faculty, faculty helping students. We're, this has brought us all a lot closer. I've asked a lot of questions is there anything that I haven't asked about or anything in general that you want to add? So I think my main message is that, you know, the chief of police and others, this is a common saying, they said, if you see something, say something. And we did. We saw something. We said something. We gave them everything they asked for. We gave them, you know, more than that you would ever need. But this tragedy still happened. So I think that whole idea needs to be revisited because clearly there's some sort of institutional systemic problem because we've just shown you proof of people doing everything right and it still didn't help. We're scientists. We just want to do science and help people and we shouldn't be having to deal with these other things. And it's really a disservice to the community if we can't do our jobs because we're worried about some sort of insane threat. Well, thank you so much for coming out today. I know that in every single meaning possible, this is a very, very difficult conversation to be held and a very emotional one. And um, I just really want to thank you. That was AZPM reporter Paola Rodriguez. The full version of this interview lasted over an hour. It'll be available on our webpage and in our podcast feed. We reached out to the University of Arizona and the UA Police Department and invited them to sit down with us for an interview on the issues raised by the students and others. They declined our offer. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're looking at security on the University of Arizona campus. Following last month's deadly shooting, there's been increased attention on safety. The Comprehensive School Threat Assessment Guidelines were developed at the University of Virginia after the Columbine shooting in 1999. The guidelines have been adopted by schools across the United States. To get an idea of what these guidelines look like and how they might apply at the University of Arizona, we spoke with Dr. Dewey Cornell, a professor at the University of Virginia and the developer of the Comprehensive School Threat Assessment Guidelines. I started by asking him how an open campus in the middle of a city can keep people it knows could be dangerous out. Prevention really has to start long before somebody shows up with a gun. Prevention has to start uh, when you detect threatening behavior, threatening statements, you have a person with a grievance, uh, and then you begin a whole series of processes to try to de-escalate and diffuse the situation. And, and I have to say, that works 99.9% .9 of the time, and we never hear about it. Uh, but on those rare, terrible occasions where something 
horrendous happens, uh, like has happened at the University of Arizona, it fills us all with fear and it makes us feel very unsafe and very insecure. We've had some conversations with students who were part of the department where the shooting took place. They said the suspect had been expelled from the university and the students and and faculty have been told if you see the person, they're not supposed to be on campus. But there are also some federal laws with privacy and academics that might come into play here. How does all of that come together? Yeah, that's a very good point. And let me just say, we don't know all the facts about this case. And so we can't really make a judgment about how it was handled, but it sounds like a terribly difficult case and reminds me of cases I've experienced uh, as a threat assessment team member at the University of Virginia. Now, let me just say in terms of, of privacy of academic records, we do have the Family Educational Records Privacy Act, the federal law to protect student uh, records and privacy. But FERPA is very clear that safety takes priority over confidentiality. Uh, You know, after the the terrible shooting at Virginia Tech in 2007, one of the big concerns was whether FERPA had prevented folks from sharing information and realizing the gravity of the situation and taking appropriate protective action. U.S. Department of Education came out uh, within a matter of months pointing out that no, FERPA does not prevent people from taking reasonable protective action and, and sharing some confidential information that's relevant to safety. In this case, we have heard reports from some faculty members in that department that were so concerned for their safety that they were wearing bulletproof vests while teaching their classes. What do faculty and and students need to do to push their institutions to help out? I don't think the responsibility falls nearly as heavily on the institution as it does on our current system. Our mental health system and our criminal justice system are woefully deficient when it comes to dealing with this kind of case. And I'm talking hypothetically here and about cases I've dealt with at the university. In those cases, the university threat assessment team and administration has very limited options. They certainly can get protective orders, no trespass orders. But the bigger problem is we don't have the ability to detain such individuals and provide treatment for them, except under very narrow conditions. The bar for hospitalizing someone who is dangerous is very, very high. In your research, what do you think is the most misunderstood part of school shootings? Well, there's a couple of misunderstandings there. One is that schools are somehow dangerous places. And, and after a shooting, it's it's quite reasonable for people to feel nervous about being on campus, particularly if you've had a threatening situation or a shooting. But statistically, objectively, schools are safe. They are much safer than restaurants and stores and parking lots and just about any place else in the community. So the larger problem is is gun violence rather than school violence. There's also a, a misunderstanding that somehow we just need to have more guards and door locks and security measures. And, and that's just not practical in our free society. 
we have to think about prevention as something starting long before there is a gunman that we're worried about. You're on that threat assessment team without <laughs> violating any laws or anything. How often are you dealing with issues? All of the problems and concerns that you might see in general society, we see here. Individuals with serious mental disorders, individuals going through romantic conflicts with domestic violence, maybe workplace grievances with their boss. There's a lot of these. And, you know, our university team deals with more than 100 cases a year. Now, those cases are not all like this one where you're concerned that someone is going to shoot somebody, but they are cases where people are distressed and a multidisciplinary threat assessment team tries to resolve that problem. And as I said, 99% of the time these teams are successful, you never hear about it. That was Dr. Dewey Cornell, a professor at the University of Virginia. And that's the buzz for this week. Tune in next week as we look at the results of the midterm elections. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Zach Ziegler and Paolo Rodriguez produced this week's show with production help from Samantha Larned. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.